welcome guys to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I am welcomed by Dr. Scott Stevenson, or we are welcoming Dr. Scott Stevenson to the podcast. Um, <clears throat> the podcast with John Meadows has now come out. Scott has done some collabs with John. So if you know John, you might have already heard of Scott. You might have heard of Fortitude Training. Uh, but if you haven't heard of Scott, then I'm going to go over his background briefly. Um, so Scott has a PhD in applied exercise physiology. He is a competitive bodybuilder himself. Um, I think it's always nice to hear kind of how people have done. So Scott has four overall titles, including the 2019, uh, 2009, even 19. We haven't got there yet. MPC, uh, Mr. Arizona and four top five national level showings. Uh, he has over 30 years in the gym. So he's been in the gym a very long time. I mean, more than I'm even years of age, which is um crazy to think and i think it's also really aspirational because i think a lot of people like look up to john meadows because he's been in the gym for so long so i love talking to people that are still training hard because i think all the listeners and myself included want to be in the gym for as long as possible so i love that um has more than two decades of coaching experience as well so you might have heard about scott from kind of some of his work with elite fes um, he has written for Muscle Mag, Flex Magazine, which I'm sure you've heard of, and has published some scientific literature as well. Um, so I really liked, and from following Dr. Scott for not a massive amount of time, I've really enjoyed his kind of philosophy and outlook. And I have to say, Scott, and we didn't talk about this off air, whenever I've seen you kind of on John Meadows' YouTube channel or heard you on various podcasts, you are one of the most endearing and kind of humble and very... To me, just you, you draw me in as a listener. I, I want to listen to you and I just find you incredibly kind of um, pleasurable to listen to in a, in a strange way. You're just very friendly. <laughs> so, Thanks, man. Um, We've thank already got a bromance like going here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've, I, I bet you have a bromance with everyone, so it's absolutely <laughs> fine. Um, so part of Scott's philosophy was keeping an open uh, beginner's mindset approach to everything, which I really loved. Um, I, I think that bangs on kind of evidence-based fitness quite well because a lot of people think about the scientific literature and then they forget uh, the anecdote and things like this, which are highly important as well, especially for an understudied area such as bodybuilding. Um, so we'll be digging into that a bit. Um, and I also wanted to add, because we'll have some listeners that will just love this, Scott absolutely, unconditionally, undeniably loves especially his dogs. So They're, um, they're right here. Ah, <laughs> they're enjoying the podcast too. Yeah, we'll probably hear from them. Trust me, they always do. Everyone knows it's authentically me when my dogs are barking in the background three or four times. Perfect. Uh, is there anything else you want to kind of inform the listeners of um, that I missed out there, or was that an okay summary? <laughs> that was great. No, when you mentioned John, too, um, mountaindogdiet.com is his site, which people oh, probably yeah. know. They've seen his, um, his, uh, his site in the last podcast you guys did. But we did a seminar up in Columbus, Ohio, just the day before the Arnold Classic, which members can get there. So it's like six hours, actually wow. more than that, because there's a Q&A afterwards. So it's over six or seven hours of John and I talking. Um, we each did three lectures. So there's all sorts of cool stuff there you can follow up with if you like. Um, that's, I mean, I think John's site's 15 bucks a month, and it's totally worth it. So I have free access, but otherwise I would be paying without a doubt. Because <laughs> he's got a lot of good, a lot of good, good, good writers on there. Um, aside from the things I've written, of course. So amazing. Check make, that out. Yeah. I'll make sure that's linked below as well. Um, as well as I'll, I'll make sure all of your stuff will be linked later. Right but or we'll, we'll talk about that later. But for the first um, kind of opening question, I did want to lead with that kind of philosophy um, and talk about kind of empirical data versus research. 
um, and whether or not you've kind of seen things within your coaching and experience that was either maybe not supported by research, but you found it to be something very efficacious or even counter to what research kind of says to us. Um, I'd love to kind of dig into that if you have much experience there. You know, there, there is a topic that I've like recently become enamored with and it's a fascinating one. Actually, we can pull John to this once again. And it's, it's the notion of muscle soreness and damage and how vital and important that is or isn't for muscle growth. And John and I are sort of at opposite ends of the spectrum because I tend to be sore all the time. Like okay. literally I get sore almost no matter what I do, unless I just do like, you know, a set of eight reps with something I could do 20 with. I'm going to get sore and it's probably because I like to train really hard. Um, I mean, I can, I could blunt that with non-sterilantine inflammatories if I wanted to. I could probably, you know, mega dose, um, uh, antioxidants. Those two things have been shown to limit, uh, muscle damage and soreness. But of course I don't want to do that. Those also limit the processes involved with muscle growth. Mm-hmm. And so there's been this, um, and <laughs> I haven't seen anyone, I'll have to go and look again as I continue to peruse this, but for years, and this is a common, it's it's um, it's sort of a violation of external validity in in research that's been done in exercise physiology and resistance exercise, um, the body of literature where people would look at an acute response and then presume um, and and recognize that this doesn't necessarily um, uh, extend out that way over time that that acute response is predictive of what's going to happen in the future, so. The one that's related to muscle growth that actually I touch on in that seminar, one of the seminars, um, one of the uh, lectures I did with John, is that uh, the myofibrillar protein synthetic response, so the increase in protein synthesis you get with an acute bout of resistance exercise, is predictive of what's going to happen over the long term. And there have been a couple studies that have been been published now um, Showing like literally one of them was Mitchell. This was a uh, Stu Phillips lab. Mitchell et al. was the first one, I think. And there's another one as well showing literally no correlation. Like the correlation was 0.01 between the acute myofibrillar protein synthetic response and the long-term like 12 or 16-week muscle growth. Um, so finally, uh, Damas et al. Is, Damas is the first name they've they've – um, follow things along to see what's going on. Like, how can this possibly be? If if you have someone who's got a much more robust sort of responder type protein synthetic response, and that happens each time they work out, of course, eventually that's going to accumulate um, over time, and you're going to get more muscle mass. Um, but uh, they weren't following this protein synthetic response over the course of training. So what was what was kind of coming about from that is, and this is what they looked into, is is initially when you start a new program or even when you switch exercises, mm-hmm. it's novel. It produces more muscle damage. You get sore as heck. Um, sometimes people will say, you know, the body doesn't know whether you're doing squats or leg presses or what have you. And I'm right. like, well, you know, leg press only for six weeks, train really hard, and then just go and do squats with the same relative load or what have you. You're going to be sore as hell. In those, in the quads, in each of the quad muscles, it will happen. There's something about the novelty. Yeah, that happens, especially for me. I'm probably extra sensitive because I get sore um, relatively easily, and it's a function of probably me and then how hard I train. 
So in this particular study, they, they replicated what had been found before is that the initial protein synthetic response wasn't predictive of muscle growth at the beginning of the training program. But I think they checked again like three weeks and then at the end, and they did have strong correlations like 0.7, 0.8. So the suggestion there, and they do a really nice job of, of digging into the literature and outlining this and looking at some of the claims that people have made that you're getting like muscle growth that's evident in the first few weeks of, of training. You, you do get an increase in, in fiber size, but a lot of the, the other bits and pieces of information tell us that some of that is just simply acute swelling. Right. You can, you can increase whole muscle cross-sectional area by like 20% if you do a really heavy damaging protocol. Um, and people see that, you know, you, the muscles are great because they're nice and swollen. And I think some people even seek that out. They sort mm -hmm. of mistake that. And it's probably the reason why I bring this up. They mistake that swelling for growth. Um, it's kind of like it's, it's, not, it's not a persistent pump. It's literally an inflammatory response. So they figured out that really what's going on there initially, at least this is what this is pointing to, is that that um, acute protein synthetic response is more so associated with, with damage and repair. Um, and it's not predictive necessarily of how much you grow mm -hmm. in the long run. Um, and in fact, and this is where, you know, this really has piqued my interest is that you can have a, for instance, a really robust protein synthetic response initially. And a lot of that apparently is going to simple repair of the damage that you've induced. Right. So you don't want to induce too much damage. You don't want to be overly sore. Um, and that's the, a hard thing to do. So it makes, makes me wonder in of myself here. And I've noticed this with um, pec training. Chest has always been a weak muscle group for me. Right. I can make it really, really sore, and I'm very tempted just to like try to obliterate it and forcing it to grow, giving it no choice. But that hasn't worked in the past. And there have been times when I, I have, um, for various reasons, either I was doing a taper, I was part of fortitude training, um, or something was changing was, uh, during a peak week, maybe when I stepped back order of exercises, I've gotten little bits of insights over the years that less is more in right. that regard. So there are a couple of things that I think get back to your question is one, uh, so many of these studies, and this is just the, the myofibrillar protein synthetic response, but so many of these studies that have the underlying presumption of what happens acutely will translate into what would happen um, longitudinally over mm -hmm. the long term, um, maybe are making a false assumption there. <laughs> So, God, how many? And, and there, are, there are some studies, for instance, where they've tested the protein synthetic response to different proteins, right. like soy versus whey, and they see a little bit of advantage of whey over soy, and that also plays out over the course of a training um, period. But so many other acute studies, you know, that would show, for instance, an ergogenic effect, and presume that that's going to carry out, whereas it might not. Yeah. You're, it's not a substitute to just do that. It's obviously cheaper. There's many, many um, sort of practical reasons, monetary reasons uh, for doing acute studies. And so, because long-term, I've done these. This was part of my dissertation research, and right. it's hard to you know keep people in and keep them coming in. And it's a whole other animal, literally, to do a training study versus an acute, you know, wham bam in one one week and you're done. So, I would I would um, just. I've kind of mentioned this, Bill. Try stepping it back a little bit. 
and see what happens. There's so many people, and I see this on my sensing questions on my forum today. I have a forum associated with um, my book. Basically, anyone can join, um, but I give free full membership to people who bought the book. I've got a dime a day membership to keep the trolls away, and it works. <laughs> it's not to make money. I don't make hardly any money off of that. Um, it's just to keep people from just going in there and trying to raise cane. Yeah. And I answer questions all the time from people who um, they've got, you know, this very typical bodybuilding, obsessive, compulsive type of mentality, which I am absolutely guilty of. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's why it's in part why you and I are talking is because I really have that perspective on learning and accumulating information. Mm-hmm. But taking it a step back, dropping things down a little bit um, isn't the worst thing ever. And sometimes it can be what you want to do. Yeah. So anyway, those are some things from the research. And that so the, the research hasn't necessarily done a great job of, a, of addressing because of the tendency to do acute studies. And that also plays into practical real world stuff. And it makes me think maybe I should just I don't know what I'd have to do. Just like do, you know, one set every five days or something <laughs> like that to stay unsore. Not sore wow. as, as possible. I don't know because literally, I, there's some soreness there that's, that's that's continuous no matter what I do. So, yeah, that's... even when I'm progressing, even when I'm growing too, sometimes it makes me wonder if I haven't optimized things. So sorry, I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say it's crazy to think because um, the repeated, like you say, in the repeated battle effect, you'd expect soreness to dissipate and you can then kind of keep progressing. But uh, maybe you have, um, I don't know, the muscles must be particularly. Uh, inclined to get sore i know certain like i know people who their back gets sore but their chest doesn't get sore and like my chest similar to you i can do very little when it gets a pump it gets sore whereas my back can just take a pounding um before right. it even i particularly even would feel pumped um so it's very very interesting indeed i've actually done um a few some of the research do when i was in graduate school was related to muscle soreness and and there is huge variability there, gigantic. And I've talked about this on other podcasts before. Some of it's the perception of muscle soreness and pain is very, very variable. Mm-hmm. And I always I tell this story about this guy who we brought in through a study. You may have heard me tell this story. Yeah, it's a great story, though. So it's still a good story, so I'll tell it. So, um, yeah, we knew we damaged him. We knew from the decrement in strength that he had you know, undergone some significant muscle damage, and he was giving it a good effort on the – the strength tests, and I was doing pressure algometry. I was pressing on a certain point on his quad and getting a pain rating on a basically a zero to one hundred visual analog scale. And he was giving me like the, the lowest number he could. It was ten centimeters long, so he was getting as close to zero as possible. And I asked him afterwards because he was it was just so out. It was just such an outlier. It's like nothing had happened to him. Although I knew he got destroyed, um, and. He told me that when he was a kid, he had open heart surgery a couple times where they literally cut through your rib cage, and he was a bit of a daredevil, and he had tried to jump his BMX bike over a wrought iron fence with with, um, with posts sticking up, and he didn't make it. He impaled himself and was like dangling there for like an hour before someone came. This is like straight out of a horror flick. Yeah. And incredible, incredible pain. So when he – when he's evaluating pain on the zero to ten scale or a zero to hundred scale, and and I used to, I would administer those um, that those scales basically by saying zero is absolutely zero sense of pain whatsoever, and ten or hundred or six whatever we're using a Likert scale whatever it may be the highest number is imagine if I had a flaming hot samurai sword and I took this and I just sliced it through your body 
um, like that and just chopped you in half. And you literally watch yourself bleed out. But people are like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. <laughs> but that would give them an idea. Yeah. And, and I talked to practitioners. I just went and saw a chiropractor here in town. We talked about pain scales. And, you know, I would give him a rating for something. And, you know, I'm like, it's maybe like a 0.5 or a 1, which is noticeable and continuous. But people do that. And I've seen this in my own practice in acupuncture. People rate their pain very differently. They really don't, unless they've got an experience like that, they don't, they don't rate pain. So, so that's an issue with the muscle soreness um, mm. research quite a bit, I think. Yeah, but then there is the, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's cra- pain is so subjective. It's impossible to really kind of one person to another. If you haven't experienced being kind of punched in the face before, that's going to be really painful compared to yeah. a boxer. So, yeah. Yeah. And then there's, then there's all the very, you know, the various, there is variability too, you know, just, and you can see this. I mean, there's, there's still the thing with exercise is that you still have subjective efforts that are being put forth. So like if you establish a one rep max and then you do some sort of a damaging protocol based on that one rep max, the one rep max is like, did the person push? Okay. That's all I can do. Or was it like, okay, you know, you're going to die. Unless you get this weight, you're dead. We're, I mean, I got a gun to your head. That type of effort. So that will, that will dictate the load, which will dictate the, the load and the strain on the muscle fibers. And then that will dictate then the resulting damage. But mm-hmm. even when you look at an MRI where you can do things like a, a T2-weighted contrast shift and look at the, the infiltration of water, that really is what, what that's essentially measuring. Um, it's all over the place. Highly variable. The muscle damage stuff is super interesting because I think like a lot of research has been coming out and more of the the kind of evidence-based folks and like you're very much pointing out is like it's not something that's necessary for growth uh, growth kind of feeling sore like muscle damages but the soreness um, associated with that isn't like something you must feel to have a productive workout whereas lots of people thought that was the case Um, and I think it's funny because a lot of the things that kind of lead to soreness are what lead to hypertrophy anyway um but right. it, then it, then you talked on kind of the individual difference anyway so um do you have any practical recommendations for like people gauging their soreness how sore should they be or shouldn't they be uh first and foremost and, and this is what i've used and it, it's been you know fairly effective over the years is is use some sort of an objective measurement of your of the progressive overload if you're if you're still able to get stronger and move forward then you're probably doing okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if the muscle is so, because the muscle damage will literally reduce the force output. Um, the muscle just the 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 contractile elements are not lined up. You're not, just not going to have as much contractile material that can pull. So the damaged fibers just won't be as effective. So that tells you something. Um, and I mean, like literally, with me as an example, if I if I have tried to go in when I was never sore, then I would. You know, every time I go in the gym, when I stretch out a little bit, I can I can just feel that there's some soreness there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the the thing is to is to try, test it out for yourself, and don't be afraid um, to uh, don't be afraid to train when you're sore. Yeah. Because some people are, and then don't be afraid to drop your volume. I think the quality of the stimulus is the most important thing that you're training hard. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I've always sort of sort of thought. Um, you can substitute volume for effort level to some degree, um, and there's different ways to train there. And those, and there's nothing wrong with varying that as sort of um, a feature of the periodization that you that you go with. If if you can if you can hold yourself back, 
that's the hard thing for a lot of people is that yeah. they only have a, an on switch that is 110%. So they can't do 15 sets and not have that be essentially the equivalent of five times, three times five sets mm-hmm. that were all out because they don't know how to train any other way. Um, but don't be, don't be afraid to uh, do less and come in fresher. And, and then the thing that can sort of um, uh, reinforce that is when you see logbook changes, you yeah. see three changes, you see movement in the gym in terms of the loads and when you've got that, then it's like, okay, I'm doing something right as opposed to, man, I want to go and train. I feel fresh. I feel good. I feel good. If you get some reinforcement by taking that extra day off or doing less in the gym, then you'll see, okay, this is working. This is okay. But it may, it may take like – may have to make the mistake of, of falling back in old patterns for years, yeah. which who knows? I may be doing. I'm not willing – I'm not unwilling to accept that maybe I've been doing things wrong for 30 years to a certain degree because I've been, you know, kind of perpetually sore right. <laughs> somewhere all the time for 30 years. Um, so I'm, I'm still learning in that regard. Some of this may be an aging effect with me as well, you know, cause I'm not a young pup anymore, but yeah. So anyway, the it's experiment because yeah. that's one of the, one of the, um, lectures I did with John was, is all about biological interindividuality. Perfect. Um, everything is, is so highly, there are non-responders, there are responders, the protein synthetic response, drugs, et cetera. Everything's, um, everything really is, is somewhat, uh, variable among individuals in terms of our biology and, and physiology, much more than people are willing to admit a lot of yeah. times. No, yeah. I, I've spoken to this, um, you might have kind of heard of James Krieger within the research and stuff and he's talked sure. about kind of the people at the other end of the bell curves and we just report means and averages and these people get missed and then they feel completely yeah. lost because when they try the the average recommendation it's completely wrong for them and yeah and he's a statistician so he's <clears> and he's looking at those numbers all the time that's that's one of the things I have in that lecture they can find on John's on John's side is you know, there are several studies where they've been several multi-center studies where they've looked at this and, and you'll see like strength gains of zero percent over the course of three or four months of training and then people that are doubling their strength. Mm-hmm. I mean, and can you imagine? And, th- and this is what I mean, this is what a lot of to bring this back home to a lot of guys who maybe out there is thinking, does this appeal? Does this fit me? Most guys who were pros or IFBB pros, or at least bodybuilders, um, uh, they they outdistanced their peers right from the get go. Um, you know they were they were responders right off the bat. And I talk about some of that. I really think, at least in terms of muscle growth, is a function of the growth factor uh, response and everything that goes into satellite cell proliferation proliferation and differentiation. That that activity there seems to be um, at least for producing substantial increases in muscle fiber size, it's requisite. It has to happen. And that, I think that's a big thing that kind of dictates um, whether people are responders in terms of growth or not. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so you'll you'll go in the gym and, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, uh, Brad Castleberry is a guy. You probably know who Brad is. Um, I have heard of Brad, yeah. He, I mean, he's, I'm, I'm sure people have, will have known who he is. I, I don't know him personally. He lives in San Diego. Um, Dante Trudell has interacted with him a little bit oh, there. Yeah. He's he's the guy who's chastised for using fake weights. He's a really strong oh, guy. He just does all this crazy. I mean, he's he's a young guy and he's kind of made of iron, but you know he keeps us up and eventually you know he's going to have some diabolical injuries. 
Um, he's probably already feeling the weathering it now, but he does like, I mean, the, whether or not these lifts are real or if he's got fake plates or whether he's got people giving him super, super assists or what have you is a whole other topic that you can probably find 20 podcasts on. Yeah. But the reason I bring him up is because he is unbelievably strong, has a phenomenal physique. And if you look at some of the videos he has with his training partners, like the, there's guys that he's been training with that are, you'd almost think they're kind of like his minions, but these are his, like his training partners, I right. think. These are the guys that are there. They're his supporters. There's onlookers. But these are the guys who would love to be able to do what he's been doing. Yeah. Like they've been – like these are – I think he's got some buddies that been with him. He's one of those guys like what – what do those guys think? It's like how come Brad can do this and I can't? Like how is this possible? Yeah. And so he's, he's like kind of this classic picture of like the one guy who's just like absolutely outstanding and he's blowing past all of his peers and there's nothing they can do about it. He's mm -hmm. just got a, a genetic advantage. He's just superior. Yeah, I, so. think, I think everyone can relate to that. I mean, when you think back to when you're at school and you have just like, I don't know, the jocks or there's always the guys who are just amazing at every single sport and yeah. uh, who are just miles ahead of you. And we can see it with like professional footballers and kind of sprinters and all of this. And we understand, oh, I'm never going to be as fast as him or as good at football as him. But we, for some reason, when it comes to our physique, we're like, no, I should be able to look like that. That should be attainable. Um, but like we've just clearly pointed out, it's, it's absolutely not. And I did want to bring it back to the muscle soreness um, element because sure. I think you basically ruled out really well in that the focus shouldn't be on whether you're causing soreness or having too much soreness. It's are you progressing? Um, and then with that, maybe the soreness is there, maybe it's not. But if you're progressing like you are, um, then hopefully you're not doing too many things wrong at least. Um, whether right. or not you could do things better and you're always learning in that regard, I guess. Yeah, that's that's the idea of, of sort of optimizing. Yeah. You know, you can – and you can make, you know, obviously someone is – you can make gains and gains and gains for a long period of time. But eventually, you know, if you're going to make gains that are closer to what you might call your, your genetic limit, you're going to have to do – just about everything right all i's dotted all t's crossed um so that's gonna have to happen you reminded me of a story this will just kind of be entertaining because i when i um first met dave henry in the gym and i coach dave now like literally we've i've helped him out and then i've been sort of more formally coaching him um basically his entire pro career which has been quite a while now amazing yeah, it's kind of cool. And but I started training with him. He was the pro. He had just gotten his pro car like in a matter of months before we met in the gym. And we started training together, and he was doing a high volume program. This is before dog crap training, and and then things evolved to okay. now fortitude training. And I just was like, I'm just going to try to keep up with him. I'm going to do what he did, and I and I did that the best I could. And of course, you know, there was some competition. There always has been between us. You mm -hmm. know, see who can and. There was one point, it was a matter of months into it, and I had just crippled myself trying to do this. I, I've had this a couple times. My whole body ate continuously. It was just ridiculous. He was fine. <laughs> he had the crouppative abilities. He was hanging in there. He was doing just fine at any. I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. Like everything just – I get done with the workout, my whole body would just ache. The, I mean the inflammation was just yeah. sky high. Um, so that right there, you know, and obviously, you know, it's funny because over the years, it's like, there's, there's Dave and there's me and, you know, there's one of the best bodybuilders of all time, pound for pound, inch for inch. And then there's me who just barely won a state show. 
And it's not, you know, not a matter of him knowing more than me um, because I'm sort of helping him out. So I've got, you know, at least all the knowledge that he has and maybe a bit more. But he's so much better than me. It's not even close, not remotely close. And that's, you know, that's just the fact of the matter. And it's been actually very um, refreshing to have that as a reminder Mm -hmm. for me because it tells me. Um, it sort of releases some of that tension of like, you know, what, what am I doing wrong? Why isn't this happening? It's like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Yeah. It's just, you just got a different genetic starting material than I do. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, I mean, it's probably, I guess not great for you, but great news for all the listeners and, and myself in that because you don't have that kind of superior genetics, like you have had to really work things out and find what works for you and what's going to work for other people. And that's often makes them is the best coaches are often not the best performers. Um, they're often the guys that have tried to be, um, and they're trying to do their best to kind of learn as much as they can. Don't ask the guy with big arms, how he got big arms, kind of ask the guy who had tiny arms, who got less tiny arms. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In fact, it's, you know, it's almost a, their advantage is obviously having great genetics as far as bodybuilding goes, but as far as being a bodybuilding coach, it's a disadvantage. Yeah. Because you can do all sorts of things and everything will work relatively well. You can't discern what does and doesn't work. Um, you can have, uh, you know, like I think I can just like bring up my hamstrings over the next three months before this next show. And some of those guys can do it mm. because all they got to do is like, Throw in a couple more exercises, and then their hamstrings would come up. It's like, oh my god! Yeah. It would take an old person eight years to do that, you know, <laughs> of toil, of blood, sweat, and tears. And you can do it in a matter of months just by, like, literally throwing in some extra hamstring curls. So um, that obviously won't work for ninety-nine mm-hmm. out of hundred people. So you don't, you don't, you don't have the learning potential. So you're right; it's good for, good for me and people who are listening, people yeah. that I can help. But um, yeah, not not good for me as a bodybuilder. That's for sure. And out of interest, is he still on uh, the high volume, like higher volume approach? Does he still do more than yourself, or has he dialed that back? Has that changed? Um, no, we did. We started with DC training. I actually, I had been doing dog crap training for um, maybe about a year. It wasn't really. I was doing a sort of a bastardized version, the best right. I could figure out. And then mm-hmm. I said, Dave, I think we should we should do this the right way. Let's contact Dante. So Dante coached Dave, and I kind of tagged along. Um, and then eventually I actually became the official DC trainer mm-hmm. for a while, Dante, cause I've known Dante for a decade or more now, um, through in- intense muscle where you can find all sorts of DC related material. And, um, and then eventually, uh, that morphed into what is now fortitude training. So gosh, maybe five years ago or so Dave, uh, I started saying, Hey Dave, give this a shot, try this out. What do you think of this? And he actually had sort of a prototype fortitude training that he used for over well over a year, cool. um, and it worked so well. It wasn't even the highly refined thing that, or much more refined that I have now. He was just doing some ideas, and because you know Dave is Dave, he responded really well. He stuck with those. So Dave's been doing fortitude training now for about four years, about cool. four or five years. And I know within so um, in the training system, I know you said you haven't had it. Okay, I, yeah, you buzzed out a little bit there. Um, <laughs> they're different volume tiers. Yeah, yeah, we had a little a little glitch. So he's he's uh, two or three. Never really goes down to one. Um, actually, just mentioned this yesterday on the podcast I do that we've actually to bring up his legs. We brought his volume tier down on the legs um, to uh, to foster more recovery and just focus more on on being progressive, and that's work. So more is not better, and mm-hmm. it was a perfect example for Dave. 
really cool. interesting. Um, yeah. And I know I wanted to bring up this quote um, that I remember you saying, I think it was in, might've been in another podcast where it was kind of, uh, where's the quote? I have it here. Um, uh, here we go. Make yourself an impressive lift, a lifter. It's a surefire way to grow. And I kind of wanted to get you to kind of explain what that quote meant, kind of make yourself an impressive lifter to kind of, and then, I mean, you're going to grow. Um, and then maybe talk about how to get there. And that might expand on kind of where fortitude training came from or its principles and things like this. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good, I have no idea when I said that exactly what the, uh, the context was, but the, op, the most obvious interpretation of that, um, would be if you get yourself and what's the old standard was like, if you're, if you're, you know, bench pressing and not a big favor, I'm not in favor of bench press. It's too much of a peck destroyer for many people, but if you're pressing four and squatting five and deadlifting five, you're going to be big. Mm-hmm. So if you make yourself impressively strong, you're going to be large. It's not a perfect one-to-one correlation. The research shows that. We can pull out examples like like Stan, Stan Efferding actually came up in the podcast yesterday. Impressed as the world's strongest bodybuilder, but mm. he doesn't have the most impressive legs. Yeah. We're talking about, about squat, per se. <clears throat> he actually would change his training program to put muscle on his legs. Um, he would go with a higher volume that, you know, Flex Wheeler kind of showed to him. So, but still getting there, this is the, this was sort of the basis of, of Dante's philosophy is make yourself a monster in terms of the loads you can handle in the gym. Um, and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to look like a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there are some exceptions where people are just crazy strong and they don't look like they're as strong as they, right. they would be, but those are really the exceptions. And anyone who gets gets stronger, um, like if you double or triple your strength, there's going to be some muscle that comes with that. Mm-hmm. It's going to have to happen. Um, another way to interpret that, I'm just sort of guessing at what I might have been saying, is that um, if you were really going after this, actually applies probably today even more because we have so many distractions with social media. Yeah. You know, I see a lot of people messing around with their phones and that kind of thing in the gym. I just saw um, something actually online, ironically enough, about text less, train more. Right. It was written on, written on the mirror of a gym. <laughs> um, and if you are the guy in the gym that is doing shit that no one really other else wants to do, um, it's not necessarily that what you're doing – per se is the smartest thing. Like if you're doing like, you know, nine or 10 step drop sets, which I've done, or I mean, I've done like 20 sets of 20 squats before. Wow. <laughs> I've, yeah. You know, that kind of, that kind of craziness, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just utter insanity. Um, literally that's just not a, a smart way to train, you know? Um, but that mentality of being an impressive lifter of a, kind of a do or die is, uh, basically pushing yourself past what um, what is definitely comfortable mm-hmm. um, and being sort of willing to do that, but also cra- crafting the training stimulus as well um, is a really powerful combination. And, you know, that's kind of what I've done or tried to do with fortitude training. And, and, and people have keep, they've been reassuring me of this is that I've, the way I've set up the different um, set types are such that you have to train hard in order to execute them per the instructions. Mm-hmm. You just there's no way around it, and that's all relative to what you can do. Like for some people, failure might come after like, you know, a, a half a second of like really pushing, and other people can just grind and grind yeah. and grind. 
Some of that's up here. Some of it's muscle fiber type, et cetera, et cetera. But the way I've constructed it is that you have to train hard, but there's also um, limiters and there's some governors in there. And those are the volume tiers, the fact that you're supposed to auto-regulate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So an impressive lifter is someone who you have the sense in how they lift that they're making they're, – they're very, very specific and targeted in what they're doing. It's like, okay, I've reached my failure point. Now I drop the weight back down. This is in a muscle round, for instance, the cluster set and part of the training system. And now I'm realigned, laser-like focus on these reps to target the muscle I'm trying to hit. Right. It's not sloppy. It's not silly. But so there, so that is that's impressive. Yeah. See, see, focus like that. But that's also coupled with crazy effort. Um, that's like holy shit. That guy just. I thought he was done. <laughs> And then I thought he was done, and I thought he, and he just kept on going. And it's it's kind of like a widowmaker in DC training. You probably have, have I've heard, heard about of them, yeah. The widowmaker, yeah. And the idea is that you'd make yourself, <laughs> yeah, you'd kill yourself off. You make your wife into a widow. Um, and those those sets, that's kind of the, actually literally what I would tell people to do is you would want to make sure that someone who's watching you in the gym would think, okay, he's done now. He's done. Like, how is he doing that? Where is he pulling that from? Yeah. How is that possible? So those types of Im- impressive efforts, impressive um, focus, impressive structure, um, it's also impressive to be able to hold yourself back and not just come yeah. in and just go bonkers. So those are all various things that are, that are pretty impressive. It's not, it's not so impressive in the gym, and I, I hate to be kind of a, a Debbie Downer on this, but it's not so impressive to be looking at your phone all the time. Some people are logging their stuff, I realize that, or having lots of conversations um, you know, that are just about, that are just sort of wasting time and what have you. Some of those, so some of those distractions are not going to, going to forward your, your cause as a bodybuilder. Um, so those are kind of less, less impressive. Imagine the guy who's got blood coming out of his nose. That's more impressive than the guy, you know, who's trying to get a date yeah. and bothering the woman who wants to go lift. So yeah, a lot of interpretations of that, but no, hopefully I, answered your question. I really, really liked the idea of kind of I don't know if it's a quote I've heard before, but kind of the really experienced lifters almost making heavy weights look easy, which kind of gives you the idea of that incredible focus. They know what they're doing and that you're kind of watching them and they're doing something crazy that you couldn't even imagine. And they look like their faces, their facial expression isn't even like they're exhausted because they've just got that incredible focus. And I guess if you're going towards a failure point or something like that or failing, then you're, you're going to eventually break, break facial expression. But, um, right. I, I, it's much more impressive to me to walk into a gym and see someone with incredible form. Maybe their weight isn't as heavy as what other people are doing, but if they've got that technique, dialed in you can tell they've got that focus they're not kind of thinking about things around them um there's mm-hmm. nothing more impressive than that to me which i guess isn't always impressive to everyone else but i think when you know kind of the degree of kind of intensity that kind of requires um and you know that they're going to get good results via doing that as well yeah you know it's funny because you brought something something that has come up because um for various reasons more and more people are doing muscle rounds it's just sort of there's kind of an acceleration and I need to do – I need to um, – I'm going to have to do a video because people think that fortitude training is just do a bunch of muscle rounds. <laughs> There's much more to that. But a lot of those have been me you know, doing them or showing how to do them. And I've get, I keep on getting the comment – and I'm not trying to toot my own horn horn, but I've been doing muscle rounds as long as anybody, at least the way yeah. I've, uh, I've constructed them. Um, and people are like, those are a lot harder than they thought they were. 
And, and I'm not someone like my facial expressions go all over the place from what I've seen. Like I, I'm not like a, you know, like, you know, face of concrete while I'm my face, you know, looks like I'm exerting myself. Yeah. But, but even then I think they're, um, there, I, I somehow I must do what you're talking about as I make things look easier than it, what it really is because mm-hmm. people are like, holy crap, that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's good. So like someone who's trained like that, I mean, if you look an example from another sport is you look at, look at some runners like, like sprinters and they even would, I think a lot of sprint, um, coaches would even say, you know, you, you want to almost have a, like a relaxed look on your face, um, because you're focused on your form. Yeah. You know, if you're like trying too hard, you're, you're just going to be all over the place yeah. and it's going to be energy wasted, not in the forward direction, but, you know, moving you laterally and and in other ways that, you, that won't make you faster. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, laser like focus like that also, you know, involves being able to hit the target muscle. Yeah. You know, when that form is like that, it's dead on. That's impressive. Like yeah. you said, that's like you can tell. And some of it's just like a subjection. That, that guy is impressive. There's something about him. He's an animal. You can tell he's not going to stop. You know, gravity is going to be owned by him today. He's not getting beat. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually the set will come to an end. Um, but we do have still have laws of physics to apply here. But this guy's will is not getting overpowered by gravity, so to speak. And so if you can if you can do that, there's almost no way you can't succeed. Literally. Mm-hmm. Just make yourself into the the biggest badass in the gym, to some degree, yeah. and it's going to show. And uh, that's a that's a easy thing to say, um, but it's a tall order. It doesn't fit with everyone's mentality. That's yeah. not for everybody, of course. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's yeah. I just I tell people it's having a few screws loose in your head. You know that's uh, that's kind of beneficial as far as that goes. But um, yeah, it it does kind of come down to that that. Um, an almost formal follow function yeah. type of thing. If you make yourself into a badass, you're going to look like one to some degree. The best your genetics will allow. You won't look like Dave Henry, but you'll you'll look somewhat impressive mm-hmm. if you could perform that way. Yeah, I guess the whole essence of progressive overload, and everyone's heard that term, it's taking your body to places it hasn't been before. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to yeah. elicit the change and the kind of growth response you want. So you have to make yourself yeah. uncomfortable. It's just part of the process. And if you don't like that, you're mm-hmm. not going to get very far with bodybuilding, are you, I guess? I, I even say it's even you should seek out the discomfort. Like literally that's I mean, that's why I've run into problems with the muscle soreness. Yeah, it's because I probably per- personally may have relied upon that even more than I should have. Um, you know, that, that's why, and that's why that people do that. They'll sort of, um, they'll sort of conflate the soreness with growth when it's not necessarily the yeah. case. It could be just, you've just created so much soreness that you're not, you don't have a protein synthetic response that can, that can, um, be great enough to contribute to positive protein balance. You're just trying to cover your, your, your cover your butt, so to speak, in terms of keeping up with the, with the damage that's been induced mm-hmm. in the inflammatory response. Um, so yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to overdo it. That's for, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, you, you want, you want to seek out that discomfort to some degree. That's what you're, that's what you're looking for. And that's, that's a, a, a trick that, you know, you can sort of apply as you're getting closer to a contest. If someone's dieted down is that, you know, the worse you feel, the better you look. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah and, and it, it applies. Like it's a very, this can be very kind of a masochistic sport, but, yeah. um, once, and this is how I, you know, probably heard me say this before I mentioned before, that's how I differentiate between pain and suffering. 
It's kind of a Buddhist notion, but Mm -hmm. pain is what you want. Suffering is a refusal to accept that pain. You only suffer if, if, if you're, if you're not accepting of it. It's like, I want that, I want that exercise to hurt. I want that to be uncomfortable because that tells me I'm doing something right. Mm -hmm. You don't want to feel stuff snap and you don't want to feel sharp pain and, you know, bruising afterwards, that kind of stuff. That's not what you're looking for. But yeah, you want the discomfort. And once you realize that, it's like, this is kind of my goal, you know, is to, is to put myself in a world of hurt. And then it's like, then it's like, okay, well, it's going to hurt. That's kind of what I'm looking for. So then it's success. You can even be happy. Um, I love the video of Tom Platts when he's squatting like 500 pounds for I think 23 reps. Nuts. <laughs> and I always, yeah, and I always suggest people look at about like rep 11 or 12. And I know a lot of people didn't catch this because I saw it like right off the bat. And his first few reps looked like he's going to get like nine. He's going to be done. And then he gets into his groove. Maybe, you know, the arthritis starts to go away or what have you. And he gets to like 11 or 12 and he gets this shit-eating grin on his face like, I fucking love this. As he knows it hurts. He's back in his zone. And that's a comfort place for him as as contradictory as that may sound. It's like literally he likes – he knows that that's a place that he's been seeking. Yeah. That's where he wants to be. And if you can if you can construct that in your mind – that the pain and discomfort, you know, in the right amount with the right, um, the right sensations, not the, you know, sharp injurious pain, but the, the discomfort that comes with really hard training is what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're just going, it's like, it's like comfort food. You're going to comfort pain yeah. and it's a good thing, you know, and that, and that makes training much more enjoyable as ironic as it is. But that's, I think that's a big hurdle too. It's easy for me to say this because it probably came natural to me, mm-hmm. but, um, I think that's a trick that can can be useful to people if they can uh, at least maybe employ it now and again to get past some some hurdles during prep or or big workouts or what have you. Yeah, I've definitely so. heard um, the quote kind of get comfortable with the uncomfortable for prep, um, which yeah. very much. I mean, I loved your perspective, and I haven't ever really thought of applying it to training in such a way. Um, so it's actually mm-hmm. really nice because everyone gets those workouts that they have anxiety over and they kind of are worried about it, but it's always kind of the change on things that take you out of your comfort zone are what change you and um, staying within your comfort zone that's not really going to change you so I know I, I really enjoy that perspective because I think for a lot of younger lifters who haven't maybe pushed their bounds it might be what they needed to hear and that kind of they need to push themselves into that uncomfortable zone and they should take comfort in that that's going to provide results <laughs> yeah it can be um it can be socially uncomfortable to do that and it can be outside of someone's personality as well yeah um uh, there, like there's, uh, I won't give too many details. I don't think that the person would be listening, but they're like, they're, I found this in, 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 I, I can, if someone distracts me in the gym and gets me going conversationally, then I'll just yammer on, you know, for 15, 20 minutes. I can kind of screw up my workout and I'll be at the gym for three hours sometimes if, if someone kind of catches me on a day. So I have to put on like that. I'm a butthole um, look yeah. and I have to avoid people sometimes. And there are some people that, um, they're they're kind of the gym's kind of more like a country club for them than a, yeah. a training zone. And they, some people don't get. I have I have like a, a do not talk list that I have to unfortunately put some people on because they want to talk to you. And that's my example of how I have to fight my personality tendency yeah. um, to want to be friendly and talk with people. And 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 for some people, if they want to get in, if all of a sudden they decide. Today I'm a pain-seeking gym maniac, and they go in their gym, 
and they're trying to be in that mindset and they've got, you know, a half a dozen people they normally have relaxed conversations with and they catch up with those sorts of things. Um, that may not work. Um, and that can be, so that can be a, a tough thing to do. If you're not someone who has sort of a, that, an intensity streak in your personality, Mm -hmm. um, you may have to find the right gym. That's why the right gym is so important. Right environment can be so important. Um, and, and even like sometimes I will go to gyms on a day when I'm like, you know, I just, I'm going to just need to get it done and I have to worry about that aspect of things. I'll go to a gym where I'm, where I'm unknown, like people, you know, a gym I don't usually go to. I'll just like sneak off to like, there are several LA fitnesses around and I have a, a statewide so I can go to any LA fitness and I can get away with that for like two or three workouts before people start <laughs> saying, Oh, this guy keeps on coming in. Like, then they want to ask questions and then I'll have to like, um, uh, vacate that, AK, <laughs> that LA fitness for a while. But that's, that can be the hard thing is like, if you're really trying to, um, switch gears, you know, prep versus off season, if, if folks don't recognize what you're trying to accomplish, because they don't have any personal experience, they've never been a competitor, or, or maybe they don't have um, uh, experience in a highly competitive, a highly focused sport. They won't get it. And mm-hmm. uh, here's a here's a trick that sometimes I will have conversations with people who I can tell are going to want to uh, um, sort of engage me when I get to the gym. And I'll tell them like, hey, so, there'll be some days when I'll just feel like I'll just want to give you a fist pound, and then I get to get to town. It's nothing personal. It's not you. Yeah. And and I will say it's kind of it's kind of like this. Like imagine like you saw like a road cyclist who's got like he's got all his gear on and he's got his sponsored outfit, you know, and he's he's hunkered down. He's like completely aerodynamic and he's just going to town. You wouldn't like pull up next to the guy and say, hey, buddy, what are you drinking there? <laughs> the Gatorade or Powerade? You because you, you see like this guy's doing his thing. Yeah. He's deep in deep in his in his in his uh, flow state. That's kind of where I'll need to go in the gym sometimes. So it's not you. It's just me trying to get my thing done. Yeah. So if you want to talk to me, let me know and I'll come talk to you afterwards um, after I'm done. And I, and I do that all the time. Most of the time people don't wait around. They, it wasn't that important. Really. <laughs> but um, sometimes those conversations, I've had them hundreds of times with people and it's yeah. so helpful because it gives you that space and it gives them um, – it's respectful to the person and they don't know what's going on. It's like all of a sudden, like, is is it the wrong time of the month for this guy? Why is he, you know, why is he being such a butthead? And it's not, he just need, you just need to focus. You can't coming in and out of that zone can be very difficult for some people. Some people can do it easily. They can just focus, but, um, it can be very tough. So it's, that's a a little thought that has helped me over the years. It took me about 15 years to figure out like, just go and tell someone, hey, I'm going to be yeah. really focused today. So we will talk later, though. I love to talk to you. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I like to talk so much, and you'll easily distract me. So um, let's work together on this, and that, that solved the problem many times for me. No, I can definitely relate to that because you almost try and be so polite that you don't say anything, but then it disrupts your workout, and you don't really speak to them, and it's just the worst thing of both worlds, whereas if you actually you set yeah. the boundaries of, I'm in here to work, I'll talk to you when that's appropriate, then you, you're golden. So I know I love that. Right. And, um, I, we've kind of talked about, and I, I really have enjoyed talking about kind of the intent you need in the gym, working hard. And this is something you brought up on another podcast and talking about kind of um, the sustainability of high intensities, kind of you, you've spoken about kind of crying in the gym, almost really pushing mm. it um, versus kind of accruing what would still be maybe deemed as hard for some people 
volume, um, which has been shown to be kind of a, a key driver for hypertrophy and kind of balancing that. And um, a question that came through that might be quite specific related to this is, um, I don't know if you've heard of kind of the reps and reserve, the R- well, you would have heard of reps and reserve, the RPE scale, um, and mm-hmm. using that as kind of a periodized approach throughout like a mesocycle. So you're not constantly pushing to your limits, um, but you're still working somewhat hard. And I don't know if you've ever thought about I don't know whether you actually, I assume you don't use that within fortitude at the moment, um, but whether you'd think about incorporating within training plans or whether it's appropriate for hypertrophy. Um, yeah, I think, I think John, John uses kind of a version of that. I've seen some other versions of that. And I, I have what I do on, for instance, the loading sets, which are kind of the heavy sets you use with the, your big, typically not always doesn't have to be, but your kind of compound go-to exercises. Yeah. Like if you, you know, you could pick 10 or 12 exercises, you couldn't do any more, these are the ones you, you choose, is um, is leaving one or two of those in the tank. So let's say you're working at the highest volume tier. For thighs, I have people do something which is which I call zigzagging. It's just basically bouncing back and forth between an isolation movement like a knee extension and a compound thigh movement okay. like a squat or leg press. And then you go to – so you might do, um, let's say, leg press, knee extension, leg press, hamstring curl, leg press. And what I do there um, to accrue volume, I think I'm getting to your, your question, is have people cut those compound exercises one to two reps shy of failure for the first few sets, in this case the first two sets, and only take the last one to failure. Okay. Um, so what that allows you to do is accrue the volume there, and you're getting much of what you need to get out of the set in terms of the stimulus with those first, you know, 10 reps out of what will be 11 or 12 if you went to failure, mm-hmm. but you're not incurring the nervous system overload yeah. that comes with that. Um, but you get the advantage of a failure point that you can use to progressively overload mm-hmm. in an auto-regulatory fashion. So, yeah, I, I know a lot of people are, are, are doing that, and you can periodize that, sort of the, um, the relative effort level, mm-hmm. you know, over time. I don't know how well... Um, unless you're like coaching someone in person, I don't know how, how much success, um, people are having with that in a in a hypertrophy context. Mm-hmm. Um, I think power lifters can do good with that because they're, they're so load and weight focused. Yeah. I think this makes sense. They can do that and you can, you can program, um, for instance, a, you know, power lifting cycle based on where you, what your previous maxes, your PRs were, your, your gym performance and where you want to be at a given meet. And you can literally program the loads in a way that would do that, that would leave you one or two reps. And then if you, if you find you're eight weeks into what would be a 12 week cycle or what have you, and you're supposed to be like one or two reps shy and like literally you're going to failure in order to meet those reps, then you need to readjust things. Mm-hmm. And that's so load focused. I think that that makes perfect sense. And I, and I, I guys do, do use that with success. Mm-hmm. Um, hypertrophy training is a little bit different. I don't know. You, you might know better than me how well people are having success with those kinds of programs um, because it, it, it is a difficult stopping one or two reps shy in sort of the black and white situation. You're doing this number of sets. Yeah. is an easy thing to do, um, but but doing that progressively over time, um, you know, over weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and never going to failure, and not having something to tell you like how close you really are to failure, is could be a little bit wishy washy. I think so. I employ that without a doubt because mm-hmm. you, there is a, a dose response in terms of volume. 
to a certain degree. Yeah. And and the big thing that I employ in fortitude training, this is another side topic, is to try to the the way the reps are performed are continuous. So you don't have those intermittent sets like a like a widowmaker where right. you're just creeping up on failure and those are the ones that really um according to use Menser's terms, create the inroads okay. into your nervous system. Those will really kind of like screw you up. And I learned that over the year. Like a widowmakers are a blast, mm-hmm. but you can be shot for a long time. Um, and I did something actually at body power last year and I may, I may do this again in the practical. Um, I had someone, uh, uh, do three sets, stopping one to two reps shy of failure. And then I had them with one leg, it was just a calf raise. And then I had them do, three sets to failure. And I even chose it such that they, this, this, this would favor against my, my theory in terms of which leg was stronger than the other one. And when you, when you tally the total load or the total weight times the load, they got more reps with the same load when they stopped one to two reps shy yeah. of failure over those three sets because their reps went from like, you know, 12 to nine to seven when they went to failure, mm-hmm. whereas they were able to do like, 10, 10 and nine or something like that. Yeah. So they got a few more reps that way. So there's, it, it does work. There's yeah. something about those failure points that can kind of run, kind of run you into the ground. Um, that, uh, so I, I like to kind of limit those to a certain degree you get as much volume in as you can, but they're still so useful Yeah. Uh, for progressive overload. No, I, I find it really interesting because I think, I mean, anyone who's lifted, they know every rep you get closer towards failure it is more and more, I think, even um, exponentially more fatiguing. Like when you hit yeah. kind of hitting failure versus leaving one, I think the like the jump is massive. Yet it's only a, an extra rep. However, every rep you are closer to failure. I think studies have shown that they're almost more effective for hypertrophy. So it's not like you don't want to ever hit failure. It's just using it appropriately. So like yourself, you're making sure that most of the loading sets you're accruing the volume and then you're hitting it at the end. And then progressing from there and a way that I've used it is kind of staying further away from failure in the, the first week of the med cycle. And then as, as week goes on, you go closer and closer. So um, I found it to be efficacious, but I, I think like you've spoken about before, it's not for everyone. Um, some people just need to go into the gym and they, they have to hit failure at some point on something. Um, and so they might need that more intensity driven approach and have to hold themselves back. Whereas other people can quite happily do this and they know the the final week in the mes cycle is going to destroy them um, right. because they're going to be hitting failure on most things. So um, it's very like there's not much research out there at the moment. So I love seeing all the different programming methodologies. There is a, a cool study and I'm, I'm going to talk about this actually at Body Power this year. I'm going to bring it up. It's part of one of a lecture I'm putting together um, that will be at the Academy. Um, and uh, I think it was Flan. F-L-A-N-N et al. 2011. And, and I think uh, I think it, maybe Eric Helms may have mentioned this in uh, kind of a roundup that he did for Alan Aragon's site, too. Oh. So people can see that there. But what they did basically is they're looking at – we're tying this all in together now with – looked at muscle soreness and how vital that is. And they took one group and had them start off with a very low volume of exercise. So they avoided soreness. Um, and they avoid elevations and creating kinase for the first three weeks of training. And the other group, um, basically, so that was sort of a pre-trained group. The other group was, was they called naive. They just brought them right in with the regular <laughs> training stimulus. And, and they did a really nice job because what happened over the, like, there was, I think it was maybe 12 weeks total. So one group went 12 weeks and the other group maybe went nine weeks. So that naive group went nine weeks 
and their creatine kinase was elevated for um, the first half of that nine-week training period at least, whereas the other group never had an elevation above normal levels mm -hmm. because they crept them in really slowly. They equated the total training volume yeah. um, between the two groups, um, and so it's basically ramp things up, and the increases in muscle size were in quad size were 7% in both groups, 65 versus 75 and increases in leg press strength or whatever their main um, exercise they tested was were 26%, 27%, basically identical. Right. And they just avoided that soreness. Um, so that was one way to do that. I think if you're someone who's coming in maybe after a period of, of uh, um, maybe even some detraining or, or de a long deload or what have you, there's no need to come in and just like blast yourself right off the bat. So your approach is a, is a good one. It'll allow you to have some volume. Um, the way I've done that is to sort of keep the, the approach the same, but I have these different volume tiers. Mm -hmm. So people can ramp into a blast, a training blast, or a mesocycle um, by starting with a low volume tier. So they're just getting a smaller dose of the same high effort level exercise. So instead of doing, in the example I used before, just on that particular day of the program, three sets of leg press, they would do the two sets of knee extension hamstring curl and just one set of leg press. Mm -hmm. that, would be, that would be all they do for thighs, and then they do stretches thereafter. So that at least gives them that failure set for the leg press that they yeah. can use. You know, okay, okay, I got 15 reps and I'm supposed to be in the 8 to 12 range. I can definitely go up some load here. Um, but but your way of doing it is is, is good as well. And it, and it's and the nice thing there, especially I think if someone has had some time off, um, is there is a still some skill acquisition. There's still kind of a practice effect that can come. So let's say you do three sets. And you instead of doing like one set to failure, um, you do three sets and leave you know one, two, or three reps in the tank. Now you've accumulated you know two or three times the practice mm -hmm. um, because you and that's going to help. Yeah, you know, and you've got more volume out of the deal. And and most of the reps are the ones they're, they're valuable to a certain degree because you got you know eight or nine out of a set of ten already. So I think there's there's value in both. Yeah. Um, there's so many ways to periodize. You yeah. can frequency periodize. You can volume periodize. You can effort level periodize. And I've never been very good at the effort level periodizing because mm -hmm. I like to just – part of the fun of training is to go in there and you know just turn the, take the governor off and remove the blinders and just pedal to the metal into the gym. Mm -hmm. um, but some people, if they're doing it your way, that's – you get to spend more time in the gym too that way, you know? And those are still enjoyable sets. Those are still hard sets. Yeah. Um, you just have to temper the volume um, to a certain degree. So some some people one set one rep or two reps shy of failure is two reps past failure for somebody else. <laughs> yeah. um, and the recovery ability doesn't necessarily match the extent to which they can they can push themselves. So some people. The people who do fortitude training who are the hardest trainers who can only do the lowest volume tier because they train so hard and um, their recovery isn't just – doesn't match their training capacity, so to speak. So they have to go with a low volume tier. Mm -hmm. So that all has to fit together and that's another example of individual differences. Mm -hmm. So – but yeah, I, I do like that approach. Definitely the accrue volume. It's, it, it works well and that's what I do with fortitude training. 
yeah, I guess, I mean, any good hypertrophy program is going to over time increase training volumes. Otherwise, it's kind of not seeing the things we want to be kind of, we know that's the progressive element we want to see eventually. Um, and that will lead I, you know, to the strength gains. I don't know so. about that. Sorry, go ahead. I was oh. just... I was just going to say it will lead to the hopefully to the almost becoming that impressive lifter kind of because volume is important for strength uh, progression as well. Yeah, you know that's a that's an interesting thing because Dorian Yates is sort of the quintessential example of someone who you know had to, because he he learned how to train harder and harder and harder, and the weights got heavier and heavier and heavier. Mm-hmm. Volume had to go down. Yeah, just degree. And that and that does happen, um, and it's I think it's highly dependent on the person. But you take someone who, you know, starts off in a definitely training adaptation. You develop that's that's a, the basically quintessential classical training adaptation is that you can handle a, a higher load and, and or a higher intensity of exercise, regardless of what kind it is, resistance exercise, what have you. Um, but then at some point, um, you know, the person who could like like when I was doing those 20 sets of 20, no way I could do that now. Some of that's mm. probably being an older guy, but I would use heavier loads yeah, now. Yeah. And I can train harder. Those sets of 20 now, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do uh, – those would be harder sets of 20, each and every one of them, um, if I went to like the same relative effort level because I've, I've reset my effort level over the course of years. Once you have like – this one of those workouts that, you know, is just elicits nightmares, you know, then you have sort of a new standard. And so that standard changes and then the load changes. So you're training both harder and heavier. And eventually, you know, you start to get to a point where you have to bring the volume back. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing you don't see addressed very often in the research literature when you talk about a dose response and, you know, wanting to add volume to elicit, elicit greater gains. And I, I hear, um, it makes sense because in some people that's the case, but eventually, um, for someone who's been doing this for 20 years, for instance, they will have to temper things back. Yeah. And that could be age because, you know, after 20 years of training, you're probably in your forties, you know, at least in your thirties, but some of the strongest lifters are in their mid thirties and forties, at least to look, look at the strength sports. So that's a really good, um, question, um, as to, you know, what to do to volume, once you get really, really, really advanced, um, what do you do? Do you try to train, keep more, get more volume and keep fewer, more, more, more reps in the tank? Yeah. Um, that can work. That's a variation. You know, maybe you need to vary things more. That's the big, the big question that I kind of have is like, what can I do now to, to get more, more muscle growth? Um, and I've been playing with some things too. Like I've done some higher volume stuff. I've done some training um, with John on video and we, yep. so I've done, I've done some muscle, some mountain dog training now with him. And I like some of those things that are there. Um, so anyway, that's what you said that in a, and I've heard that so many times and I thought to myself, but I have so many examples of people that can really train hard that just can't do that. It would just yeah. be no way. And actually, so, I mean, it reminds me of a question that's come up before and I don't think anyone's completely certain on the answer to this in that, a lot of people talk about if you make a muscle stronger, then you can then do more like in the lower rep ranges, you can use more weight in the heavier rep ranges. So you can do more total volume. 
But in the same regard, if you're then stronger using heavier loads, like you've just said, they beat you up more, so they actually fatigue you more. So then maybe you can't do as much volume. Um, and so that's kind of always been a bit of a something I'm not completely sure of either. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or whether you've thought, oh, yeah, stronger muscle can do more, handle more volume um, or whether now <laughs> it's stronger, it actually reduces your volume abilities. Well, that, that brings up the notion of a specific strength. So... A specific strength, a specific tension is the, the is the force a muscle can produce, and this would be like in an isolated situation, like um, you know, muscle that's in situ or that's been taken completely out of the body, and it's forced to con- to produce um, force electrically. So you stimulate all the muscle, and then you can get a measure of what the force relative to cross-sectional area or volume would be. And specific strength is the force relative to the cross-sectional area that can be produced voluntarily. And specifics, that's what neural adaptations to training are, is, is increases in specific strength. So you're stronger for a relative muscle cross-sectional area. Um, so that means you're able to activate more muscle and or activate it at a higher frequency or with a better activation pattern for producing muscle force. Um, so that's one piece of the puzzle. I'm just think, kind of thinking this out through my head here because it relates to what we were just talking about. Um, the other piece, other piece of the puzzle is the repeated bout effect. You know that has that has some some effect as well. So if you take a muscle and you stimulate it um, with a voluntary training stimulus, and you're someone with high specific strength, you've produced more force, um, you've activated more muscle. You know, keep the sets and the reps and the relative intensities, you know, um, percentage of one or rep max intensities the same. The stronger person with greater specific strength has just um, created a, uh, a stronger insult to that muscle with the training because neurologically they're capable of doing that. Um, you'll get the repeat about effect, but that pretty much – that can persist for months and months and months, but you basically – that's a matter of, you know, just a few bouts and then that's there. So recovery is a function of a whole bunch of things. But it, from the perspective of the muscle, it's an it's inflammatory response mm-hmm. as well. So the, the tra- more trained person is probably going to have um, developed because they've been training that way for so long um, an immune system that's more capable of handling the inflammatory response um, for those heavier training bouts. Um, but at some, at some point, and here's kind of my thought on this, we have to recognize that this is, it's an, it's an unnatural act as I like to refer to it because we're picking up a load and putting it down and picking it up and putting it down and picking up and putting it down. We're basically, you know, intentionally inducing damage to sort of, um, hijack the adaptive capacity of our muscle. Mm -hmm. So it'll grow like a callus. We're making it grow so like you get a callus to grow by rubbing sandpaper on your hand. Um, so I think, yeah, that the, the, the larger, uh, stronger, higher specific strength person um, eventually is going to probably be able to um, evoke such an insult that they're going to have to pull back on the volume of that to, cer- to a certain degree. In order to recover, yeah. So they can come back and produce another insult. So, does that get to what you were? I think so. 
And I think you've yeah. spoken about it before in that um, <clears throat> this kind of touches a bit on the empirical data versus research in that um, when you're looking at kind of training studies, it shows that frequencies of like two plus per week seem to be kind of the best for muscle growth. Whereas when you look at the biggest guys, they are doing kind of one times per week frequency a lot of the time. They have that lower frequency. And maybe it's an element of just they to create such an insult that now to recover from that, they can't possibly train that twice per week. There they are. <laughs> um, yes, I know. It's probably the male, huh? Um, yeah, now I have a whole bunch of thoughts on this because fortitude training is a high-frequency a high frequency program. And there's going to be an inverse relationship between frequency and volume in each workout. Um, the thing that from what I've been able to delineate in the literature that, 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 um, uh, characterizes those responders, which are most of the biggest guys, most of the pros is they get this extraordinary growth, growth factor response. Actually in, in some of the work they have, um, they have more, they have a higher density of satellite cells to begin with in sort of the untrained or pre-trained state. So they've got a greater capacity for, for growth there. They're basically, they're set up um, to have more myonuclei and thus be able to have larger muscles. So they're not exceeding that, that myonuclear domain um, maximal size. So that pro there's not a lot out there on that. I'm mm. waiting for someone to like look into this more deeply. I'm, I'm sure it's probably under, under, underway. But it seems like that process of um, you can look at like PACs, seven positive cells, which gives you indication of whether those satellite cells are turning over and if they're active. And that, that, that response to a given training bout, at least one study where they used, it was kind of a muscle damage study, but kind of the best data I've been able to find, it lasts about five days. So you stimulate the muscle, um, you produce that damage, you set in motion the satellite cell proliferate, proliferation, proliferation, differentiation, incorporation into the cells, and that's about a five-day process. Guess that's best I can sort of guess mm -hmm. at this point. Um, so that's much longer than the increase in muscle protein synthesis, yeah. which is maybe 24 hours when you're in the train state. It's, it's shorter and yeah. it's dampened. Um, but once you've got the satellite cell proliferation underway, like that's a committed step. You're, you're now basically setting up a whole myonuclear domain in the cell. You, you, you're, that, that's a, and, th and those stay, those remain. That's one of our mechanisms of muscle memory. Yeah. Those remain for months, if not years. Um, there's a really cool study with mice where they gave the mice uh, anabolic steroids and they increased muscle size increased satellite cell number, um, all the things that would happen there. And then they removed that, and then they had a control group that didn't get the, the steroids. And then when they re retrained them, um, actually they were using different uh, um, groups of mice because they had to sacrifice some of them along the way. But um, they, when they retrained them, the ones that had previously used steroids grew more quickly, and they had more satellite cells yeah. in reserve. Um, so those stay for a long period of time and they, and they hang out there. So if that's like a five day process, you can do that. And you've got a good growth factor response and your satellite cells are highly responsive. You're a responder. You could train once and you're not like losing any ground because that process is taking place over the course of five days. So 
that's how a lot of the biggest guys train. They yeah. just got to do it once. And you can, you can definitely recover in those five days or a week. And you're not losing ground in terms of the most important thing probably for ultimate muscle size, which is the satellite cell activity. Um, so my thought is that the, the g- genetic responders are the ones that can turn on the satellite cell response. And they're the ones that could get away with training infrequently like that because they have a really robust response in terms of the satellite cells. Whereas someone who is not a genetic responder needs to elevate the growth factors, the other things that are involved there. So it's kind of like uh, the growth factors will go up and they'll come back down. And if you're, if you're someone who has a really good response, you get a really powerful growth factor response. And that, and that gets the process going. You may need to nudge that more regularly in order to like maybe there's some requisite minimal level, some threshold level of growth factor exposure that needed to turn on, like let's say, a given satellite cell. To, to proliferate and then to, to bring about all the differentiations. There's a lot of steps there has been elucidated, but I've never seen it in this context. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some requisite amount. You could even test this in cell culture. And the, the lesser um, genetic bodybuilder who doesn't get that robust growth factor response, maybe he or she needs to train more regularly and um, to prolong the growth factor response or even elevate it, even um, superimpose um, more growth factor elevation because he's training every other day to get the satellite cells to do what they need to do so you can get muscle growth mm-hmm. um, through a higher frequency regime. So that's sort of my thought on frequency versus um, uh, versus volume is that you can only you can only grow you can only do so much before you're not going to recover. But it may be a factor of, of massaging the growth factors and the satellite cells in a way that fits with how you respond to a given training bout, um, but doesn't also cut into your recovery because you're not trying to do too much. You can't do 20 sets every other day. Yeah. Um, and the thing you know that I mentioned too when I do my talk on frequency is that Ronnie Coleman, who you know, oh, yeah. epitome of a, a freak, he trained everything twice a week too. He was on a six-day split. He was on a push-pull leg split, doing high volume twice a week. Um, you know, people kind of forget that he didn't wasn't a once-a-week trainer kind of guy. He was twice a week, and he could recover from it. So he yeah. had that taken care of. But he also was kind of a high-frequency trainer. He trained more frequently than Dorian Yates did, I think, if you look at regularity of hitting a muscle group. So, you know, who knows? what it was about Ronnie, probably a bunch of things. He probably could do whatever he wanted to with a ground. Yeah, he but that's a freak. <laughs> yeah, he was. And he paid the pi- piper eventually, yeah. up, you know, in terms of his skeleton. But, um, so yeah, I do, I do wonder, you know, about, uh, you just have to stay with, you have to recover and you want to do as much as you can besides those satellite cells. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a, that's a big topic. I hope, um, that, that would really, and there's actually, there's actually room for that, you know, outside of the bodybuilding literature to, to try to figure out what's the best way to get people who have um, muscular um, issues, right. um, older folks, people with dystrophies or what have you. What's the best way to get their um, get muscle muscle mass on individuals who are lacking it for pathological reasons? Mm-hmm. Should we train it? Should they train every day or should they train once a week? Um, it depends on probably, you know, the pathology and how it's affecting their recovery and inflammation. 
<laughs> but there's reason to to dig into that other than just to make the biggest meatheads on the planet. Yeah. So. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully it'll be studied. I think a lot of these things. I mean, I've never heard of anyone approach frequency in the way you've just approached it there, which is fascinating, and I I really enjoy that. And um, I think it's why kind of the empirical data is so important because you need to almost be your own experiment with many of these things and what we've kind of the big take homes I think that we've spoken about is for hypertrophy you need to train hard but also be able to recover from that so you can keep going and going harder and that in itself is such a simplification of everything <laughs> but that's where the art of programming then comes in uh, so right. I think you've kind of pulled that out really well yeah and, you know, I wonder, I mean, I, there's so much to be seen, like what happens if we cut reps, sets shy, like one or two or three reps of failure? Is there a difference between, because satellite cells are important for regeneration and, and I mean, literally they, some of the satellite cell workers, they, they'll just use like a blunt force trauma. Satellite cells are there for repair. So like what happens, in, for instance, in the study, the flan study I mentioned, where they avoid soreness. Yeah. They got the same level of muscle growth. Was that just because, you know, you're going to – these were newbie gains to some degree and you're going to grow kind of no matter what they did. You don't have to train that hard. You don't have to get sore. Um, what happens if you go two, two reps shy of failure and you compare that with um, taking all the sets to muscular failure in terms of the growth factor mm. response? Um, you know, or, or, or does it really matter because so much of your protein synthesis is going to repair in that situation that you're not going to accumulate muscle protein? I mean, there's all sorts of unknowns of like yeah. the interaction between the muscle protein synthesis and the, and the satellite cells. I, I hope that, um, you know, maybe kind of the next step that people will, will, will start seeing is less of a look and focus on muscle protein synthesis, satellite cell activity. Um, you know, acutely over the long haul, you know, and how well is acute satellite cell activity predictive of long-term muscle gains? Mm -hmm. And what happens if we train with 10 sets on on Mondays versus 10 set, five sets on Mondays and five sets on Thursdays in terms of growth factors over the course of the week? And how well does that tell us what's going on throughout the course of the training plan? Mm -hmm. um, because you know, there's some there's some instances where satellite cells don't really matter um, so much for growth, but overall, the overarching picture is yeah, they're important, especially if you want to get really really large muscles, mm -hmm. which we're we're interested. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, so uh, hopefully, you know, ten years from now, what I'm talking about will be, you know, old hat. You know, people will look way yeah. past this. Hopefully so. Brad Schoenfeld, I don't know, maybe have some children at some point in there, hold on his legacy of all the muscular uh, research he'll be doing. Yes. <laughs> the Royal Schoenfeld family yeah. of a muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, I can see that. Awesome. Right um, well, I want to kind of call it there. We've been talking for a long time and um, I think cool. we, we may have to get you back on, especially I think the listeners are going to absolutely love this. Um, we have, I mean, our audience is bodybuilders, all about maximal hypertrophy and I don't think many of them will have been um, exposed to your information and the stuff you're talking about and um, just a different perspective so I if you would be willing to come on and I'm sure that the listeners would want it it would be fantastic um, to kind of talk shop again yeah that would most definitely man this was awesome. this was fun
obviously you can tell I like like talking. Not a lot of people I can talk to in the grocery store about this kind of stuff. So this is so this is fun for me. Better than the gym as well. So um, if yeah. people do want to reach out to you or find more of your things, you've talked about the book. Um, do you have like a, a website and Instagram and everything? I know you're on Instagram and everything. So um, where's best reach you, Scott? Uh, FortitudeTraining.net is my site. I'm on Facebook, Scott Stevenson. It's fortitude underscore training on Instagram. That's growing like crazy. I had I had no idea. Awesome. Like that's, yeah, I, I have mixed feelings because you can only convey so much. Like the depth and quality information can be kind of um, superficial yeah. with Instagram, but still, like that's taken off. I'm kind of kind of uh, boggled by it, but I'm going to make use of that. I think because that's really doing well, and then people can find me through there, of course. But just Google Fortitude Training. A lot of people are like, where can I get your stuff? It's like, I show up pretty well, so I'm e- I'm easily Googleable. Fantastic. Um, people can't find me. Yeah, cool. I'll make sure that's all linked below. And um, I mean, even if we don't get any kind of questions coming through, I am going to make sure I pick up Fortitude Training, and I will do my best to read through all of it because <laughs> I know it's right a, a great read and it uh, it's I mean comprehensive. I know it's a, it's not short, so um, I'm yeah, looking forward to long. that. Um, and I'll probably have some questions that I want to dive into from there. So yeah, thank cool. you so much for coming on and spending your time with me. Um, and I am sure the listeners are going to have really enjoyed this. So thank you. Right on. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it, bud.